0: as your pastor, it just means that I believe in you. I believe in your ability to go back this week and study for yourself. I believe that we're going to talk about it and then you're going to go home and dive into it for yourself. Um, And I'm probably not going to address every little thing because honestly, this book, oh my lanta, this book, this book is crazy. Never have I ever, this is a confession, never have I read so many commentaries or books or studies on a book before preaching on it because Revelation probably is the most intimidating book for a pastor to preach from. Uh, but I also find it to be very appropriate for us to discuss because every generation has a the end, doomsday prophet. Every I, I was reading and in one of my books, I wasn't around for this, so those of you that were are seasoned saints, I'll say that respectfully. Uh, you can... Uh, you can confirm or deny There have been numerous Antichrist sightings throughout history, right? Wasn't JFK the Antichrist for a minute? No, yes, maybe? You don't remember that? You remember that? Bill, you, you heard that? Him, him and then Obama. It's whatever president you don't like, suddenly, hey, they must be the Antichrist. I don't like them. It's ironic. It's ironic how that works. It's like it becomes overly partisan or something. It's because it is overly partisan. But throughout throughout this book, what we can do, which is maybe perhaps counterproductive, is directly apply it to 21st century America. Now, that's not to say it doesn't apply to us. This book really applies to us. It's a big deal. We need to read it. But we sometimes try to apply 21st century culture to a book written in the first century. That doesn't always work. These references, these symbols, these things we've gone through, the seven signs and then the trumpets and then the seals and now the bowls, they are full of symbolism. They are full of of metaphor that we can argue about whether to take them literally uh, literally or figuratively, metaphorically, whether this is this date or that is that date or what this number means or that number means. And it's really helpful for us to understand what the initial audience may have thought About what was written, so that we could maybe get to the heart of what the author is saying. See, there's something that I've heard uh, that has really challenged my thinking of this book. Instead of making it a literary or a literal versus metaphorical debate, maybe it's better for us to see it in literary terms. This is a letter, it has themes, it has a point, it has something that the author is trying to get across. That in all forms of literature, there's a plot, there's this climax, there's the, the bad guy, there's the good guy, and in that lies the truth of the story of the literary piece. Now for us, though, it's the Bible, it's significant, Jesus told John to write this stuff, so we want to get it right. Could you quiet your baby, ma'am? That's my baby, actually, so that was the joke, I'm just kidding, you don't have to go out. I'm giving you grief, because it's my kid and I get to say that about my kid. <laughs> my wife's not here, because last night she had the craziest thing happen while she was working. She was opening up, a, uh, she was opening up some sort of uh, packet of basically purel, and it exploded in her eye. So she shot purel straight into her eye, and she was temporarily blinded for a couple of hours. So she's at home keeping it closed, because it hurts really bad to open. So that's where she is, which is why. Yeah, her eye is clean. Oh, my lanta. There are certain types of cleaners you don't use on your eye, actually. Probably wouldn't recommend a number of them, like bleach and any number of things. Windex? No. Uh, My big fat Greek wedding would say spray Windex right in that eyeball, right? But we're getting off track. Oh, my lanta. Throughout history, folks, the temptation is there. That's the Antichrist. This person over here, that's the false prophet. This one over here, that's the... Oh, this is obviously the... But in the first century, there were some pretty clear villains that were at play that personified who the villains, the bad guys of this story were. But guess what? Those bad guys were replaced with more bad guys. And those bad guys were replaced with even more bad guys. But the good guy is the one that doesn't change. And that's going to be our focus a little bit this morning. See, in chapter 15, we're getting close to this final epic countdown. I'm not going to read all of chapter 15. You can read that for yourself later. But this is the final culmination of sevens. Seven bowls of judgment are poured out. And there's a lot that is discussed or debated as to whether, okay, was it first the seals, then it was the trumpets, and then after that were some signs, and then it was the bulls, and it's a chronological order of judgment? Or is it the same story told from different perspectives? Or is it and your... All right, let's practice this real quick. Remember the phrase we got to say? I could be wrong. So say it again with me real quick. I could be wrong. So I could be wrong... But I don't think the truth of the story is in those details and getting every last one right. The truth of the story is this continuous theme that we see in this book. In those first letters to the church, Jesus is telling John to tell them, hey, you're supposed to do this, but you're doing that. Come on now. Hey, you, you think you're really good, but you're not. Jesus wants this. The world wants that. You're choosing the world. You're choosing compromise. And that story continues because the more the compromise is chosen, the natural repercussions are these judgments. And there's a lot that we could make of that word judgment. There's a lot that people get concerned about because it it begs questions of whether we have free will or whether God completely controls everything, what to do with a broken world that is created by a good God. But what we see is that throughout every one of these judgments, there was a choice that was made. That given the opportunity, people could say, you know what? This is not the path I want to be on. That was unpleasant. I'm going to go over here. That the natural repercussions of decisions can lead to the judgmental wrath that we would call it in the Bible, where God basically is saying, you are getting what you have deserved You have chosen this path for yourself, that you reap what you sow. That God is not punishing because He's this God that likes to burn ants with a giant metaphorical magnifying glass, but that He gives us choices. And perhaps the natural cause reaction that He implemented from the very beginning is coming to its fruition. That poor decision making can lead to poor decision making, can lead to even more poor decision making and can completely and totally mar damage, ruin the planet, this place that we live all of this wraps up into this epic, final calm before the storm in chapter 16, the seven bowls continue and there's all this interesting metaphor, there's all this interesting discussion about angels pouring out bowls, the the sun burning people the the seas turning into blood all these things that that we really could spend a lot of time on. That we will almost certainly spend a little more time on talking about Wednesday night if you want to come to that. But there's this one verse that sort of sets the tone in verse 16. It says, The spirits gathered them at the place that is called, in Hebrew, Armageddon. That all of this is coming to a head. We just talked about the dragon, the serpent. We just talked about the beast of the sea, the beast of the land. That we talked about God's faithful, his, his army that is going to, to throw down against the evil trinity, that all of this is going to take place in one spot. Now, depending on what denomination you're from, there's a lot of thoughts about what this is going to look like at the end. This field of Megiddo, some call it, where this final battle is going to go down. But what that battle looks like is what is most often debated. I watched, and I didn't know what to think of this, honestly, church. I watched a tour guide give a tour of Megiddo on YouTube and share some very interesting thoughts about what was going to take place there. And it was old enough that what he was saying was going to take place. It didn't. Shocker. But he was basically saying, because of this president, because of this secretary of state, and because of this nation doing this with that, this is going to happen probably by... Blah, 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 it was a, it was a couple of years ago, it should have happened maybe, and surprise, surprise, it didn't. But again, I think it's a perfect picture of missing the grand story for the details that are in each chapter. Again, it's probably important for us to remember that this was written as one complete letter, that it wasn't broken up into chapters, that it didn't even have the subheadings, that are helpful to tell us what's happening in the next chapter. How many of your Bibles have those subheadings? Mine in chapter 17 says Babylon and the beast. That wasn't in the original letter. The numbers for the verses weren't in the original letter. That is us helping each other stay on the same page literally. I can tell you what chapter and verse I'm on so you can get right to it. This was initially a scroll that a person sat and read all the way through. That people heard it And they got the overall themes, the overall story, the overall points, loud and clearly. And there are some very interesting things that happened, especially in chapter 17, that I think they would have immediately drawn comparisons with their world to. In chapter 17, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls spoke to me, Come, I will show you the judgment upon the great prostitute, I know, it's in the Bible, I'm allowed to say it, who is seated on the deep waters. The, king, the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her. Those who live on earth have become drunk with the wine of her whoring. Again, this is in the Bible. You can get mad at me if you want. I'm not cussing or anything. This is straight out of the Bible. Then he brought me in a spirit-inspired tra- trance to a desert. There I saw a woman seated on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names. It had seven heads and ten horns. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing. She glittered with gold and jewels and pearls. In her hand, she held a gold cup full of vile and impure things that came from her activity as a prostitute. Graphic. This is a PG-13 book in the Bible. In name, a mystery was written on her forehead. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the vile things of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk on the blood of the saints and the blood of Jesus' witnesses. I was completely stunned when I saw her. Now, this is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of the final battle, of the final throwdown. This is the, the last thing that basically takes place in this book before Jesus wins. And what's curious about this is that this word Babylon is thrown around regularly. Now, if you if you remember, Babylon was not the good guy in most of the stories in the Bible. If you remember, Babylon was basically the reason why Daniel was thrown into a lion's den, why Shaq, Mac, and Benny were thrown into that large oven, why all these things were happening because they chose not to give in to Babylon. And what's curious about this description of Babylon is that in verse 6, John says, I was completely stunned when I saw her. Verse 7, And then the angel said to me, Why are you amazed? I will tell you the mystery of the woman, the seven-headed, ten-horned beast that carries her. He's stunned by her. He's stunned by this personification of what many, they all could be wrong, I could be wrong, would see as a, a very clear reference to the Babylon of that day, Rome. See, this whole book, this letter, was written by a man who was in trouble because he chose not to compromise because Rome said stop doing that. He said, nah, I'm going to do what Jesus said. And he got thrown on an island isolated from the rest of the world. Now I'm sure this could be some conjecture and I could be wrong, truthfully. It's not just, that's not some sort of sarcastic quip. That is, that is very truth. If he wrote letters to churches saying Rome is terrible, give them... Heaven, I guess, instead of raised H-E double hockey stick or something like that. I'm sure if he wrote some sort of propaganda letter that actually spoke out against Rome, someone would have read it and it wouldn't have been delivered to the churches. Like it just wouldn't have made it off that island. He had to write something that was going to be carried by somebody that was going to get to the churches at some point. So for me, whether it was because he had a literary style or not, I don't know, but most Orthodox Christianity, for the last 2,000 years or so, most would very clearly say that this is some sort of reference to Rome or any Babylon that would tempt you to compromise your faith. See, this interesting image is of a woman that might be very attractive, and he's saying he is stunned when he saw her. The angel notices his facial expression and says, Why are you amazed? Apparently there is something attractive about this Babylon because she's well-dressed. She's wearing powerful royal clothing. But she also might be the epitome of evil. See, the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3, they were being tempted by Babylon. A couple of them were being very tempted. They were actually compromising themselves in a very similar way, but But Jesus referred to the temptation as Jezebel. And basically what they were doing was worshiping idols so that they could sell things in the trade guilds. There was something something too enticing about being able to make money, to have power, influence, intrigue, and they they couldn't say no. See, throughout the Bible, and especially in books like Revelation, they bring up these labels like Babylon. They bring up these images, and, and oftentimes people make their assumptions about what is being personified here. Some will take a really uh, really uh, interesting stance that this is an actual woman that will actually ride on a beast, and maybe that's the case. But the same truth applies. This woman, whether personified, whether Rome personified or a literal woman, is trying to tempt God's people Away from faithfulness. And what was doing that better than anything in the first century was the Roman Empire. Eventually, the Roman Empire falls, and it talks about this woman falling. And people debate whether or not that is actually what this is alluding to. Because in John's day, chapter 18 talks about this fall. Uh, Rome hadn't fallen yet, and it was called the greatest empire ever, the biggest, the baddest, the strongest. It had conquered more people, spread further. It seemed to be this unstoppable force, but it too falls. In chapter 18, verses 2, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a home for demons and a lair for every unclean spirit. She is a liar for every unclean bird and a lair for every unclean and disgusting beast because all the nations have fallen due to the wine of her lustful passion. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth became rich from the power of her loose and extravagant ways. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you don't take part in her sins and don't receive any of her plagues. Once again, there's this interesting choose-your-own-adventure-folks message Once again, whether this is a literal woman that will come out of the sea and ride beasts or or if it's a metaphor for Babylons, there is a choice that is to be made. You may have heard me say this. I'll say it again. America is a great country, but it's still a Babylon. It just might be the best Babylon, but it's still a Babylon. It's going to present many opportunities for you to compromise your faith. At the end of time, this seems to be the narrative of this story, that the natural cycle of humanity is to try to do it its own way. Go back to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. It's an interesting picture of a very similar story of human beings say, you know what, we can do our, We, can, we could build a tower, hang out with God, it's cool. God's saying, nah, that's not how this works, folks. Eventually, eventually Babylon's fall. They're replaced by another one, and then that one falls. It's replaced by another one, and then that one falls. If you're a fan of history, you can see an interesting cycle that takes place. In that void of a vacuum, another nation rises, and then that one collapses, and another one rises. And every single time, those nations have some sort of flaw that makes following Jesus slightly difficult. So at the end of this story, there is this really interesting choice that is being made. In eighteen, verses five, her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God remembered her unjust acts. Give her what she was given to other, give her back twice as much for what she has done. In the cup that she has poured out, pour her twice as much, to the extent that she glorified herself and indulged her loose and extravagant ways, give her pain and grief. In her heart she says, I sit like a queen. I'm not a widow. I'll never see grief. Sounds like something Rome would say. I'll never stop being Rome. This is why her plagues will come in a single day. Deadly disease, grief, and hunger. She will be consumed by fire because the Lord God who judges her is powerful. What this, what this close to the end chapter in this book is saying is that Babylon, by its very definition, is in opposition to God. God that at some point Babylon will get too big for its britches, and will start to say, oh, we don't have to do that. We don't need to be a part of that. We know better. And we're going to choose to give into our own loose and extravagant ways. In verse 11, it's curious because it goes back to one of the letters of the church. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and jewels. And it just keeps going. Verse 15, The merchants who sold these things and got so rich by her will stand a long way off because they fear the pain she suffers. They will weep and mourn and say, Oh, the horror, the great city that wore fine linen, purple, and scarlet, who glittered with gold, jewels, and pearls. In just one hour, such great wealth was destroyed. We're going to jump to uh, chapter 19. Chapter 19. You can read the rest of that on your own. I trust that you will. 19, there's this interesting shift. Babylon gets Babylon's, the beasts get theirs. There's this interesting opposition given to God, and then suddenly a celebration. A huge crowd in heaven. They said, Hallelujah. The salvation and glory and power of our God, his judgments are true and just because he judged the great prostitute who ruined the earth by her whoring. And he exacted the penalty of the blood of his servant from his hand. Then they said a second time, Hallelujah, smoke goes up from her forever and always. And then let a jump back to chapter 4. 24 elders, four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they said, Amen, Hallelujah. And then we get to verse 11. Where Jesus enters into the picture. Now, before we read this section, folks, there's a, lot, there's a lot about this particular section of chapter 19. There are a lot of differences of opinions. I'll say it again because it's worth noting. We live in a country that probably has more Christian denominations than any other country on the planet. A lot of that has to do with this very chapter. A lot of that has to do with our different takes of the book of Revelation. Or whether we're, oh, I subscribe to this guy's theology. Oh, well, I subscribe to this person's theology. You don't see us fighting over, well, I want to follow Jesus more than you do. It's always, well, I'm right, and I'm going to take my toys, and I'm going to go home, and I'm going to be really petty about it. That can happen in this chapter. That can happen right here because this this is the second coming of Christ, and this is a big deal. This is the moment where things happen in a very permanent way and what is actually going on here is hotly debated. Verse 11, then I saw heaven open and there was a white horse. Its rider was called Faithful and True and he judges and makes war justly. His eyes were like a fiery flame and on his head were many royal crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He wore a robe dyed with blood and his name was called the Word of God. Heaven's armies wearing fine linen that was white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword that, will, that he will use to strike down the nations. He is the one who will rule them with an iron rod, and he is the one who will trample the winepress of the Almighty God's passionate anger. He has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the stage is set and Jesus is coming back and there are a lot of opinions as to what this looks like. We just read in 18 chapter 4 that there's this this opportunity to turn back to repent. And then in chapter 19 we see Jesus coming back to deal with what is left of the evil on the planet. See, some think Jesus coming back to this battle of Megiddo, some think he comes back in maybe a slightly different way than he came the first time. That this time maybe he's not so meek and mild. He comes back as a warrior king and is going to go to war against earthly armies. Others, others think that Jesus is coming back to make war against evil Itself that this has a much more spiritual element to it than we would like to admit. There are wise to both. Um, it's interesting to consider. In verse 13, Jesus wears a robe dyed in blood. That's not normally what a king would wear to battle, but it seems to go back to the slain lamb image of Jesus. That Jesus wins because he sacrifices himself that he already paid the price and he's coming back to deal with the final evil itself. Then there's also the sword of his mouth in verse 15, which, if you, if you have a toy sword at home, try to sword fight your kid with it in your mouth. It's just not going to work super well. doesn't seem to me the most practical way to fight. Some take that as a literal sword that he's going to come out and start cutting heads off. Others see it as once again... Metaphor for truth, for justice, for the word of God, because he's not dealing with human kingdoms, but but those that have dominion over those kingdoms, the, the evil that this planet deals with on a regular basis. And this might mirror other biblical references to the sword of the spirit. And what's curious is heaven's armies sound a lot like the martyrs, those mentioned in previous chapters as well. They're already in heaven. And also, before any battle takes place, something very curious happens. So verse 17 and 18 set the stage. War is about to take place. The earth knows it. Birds gather around. They want to eat carcasses. They want to take over uh, whatever is left over because they're hungry. And in verse 19 it says, Then I saw that the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies had gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Are squaring up for the battle of all time. But the beast was seized, along with the false prophet who had done signs in the beast's presence. He had used the signs to deceive people into receiving the beast's mark and worshiping the beast's image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed by the sword that comes from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. Now, depending on who you think those beasts are, if they're literal, actual, ogre-like beasts, then Jesus is going to have a pretty epic fantasy throwdown that I would watch a movie of, because that would be really interesting to watch. But if it's a metaphor for just evil itself in different forms, then Jesus is going to battle in a way that kind of makes sense with uh, something that Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.12. Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So there's something interesting about this epic battle. I mean, it would be one thing to just say, Oh, Jesus uses some like Holy Spirit tanks, and then he uses some discipleship jets, and he uses this, that, or the other, but... I'm not so sure that's Jesus' style. I'm not so sure that's what Jesus would do. I could be wrong. But consider for a moment the biggest hang-up people have with a good God creating and ruling over a broken and evil world. And that's that evil seems to go unchecked. So it only makes sense to me that, that God deals with evil. That at the very core of all these problems that it is dealt with that Babylon who fooled so many is cast into the depths that those who are fooled might have one last chance to repent and choose good over evil. I mean a big world war seems to only add to the brokenness if you ask me. But a battle to end all battle that expels evil from existence that sounds like something only the almighty God that we serve can do. I could be wrong. The battle continues. In chapter 20, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the abyss and a huge chain. He seized the dragon, the old snake, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss, then locked and sealed it over. This was to keep him from continuing to deceive the nations until the thousand years were over. After this, he must be released for a little while. Why? If you can set the timer, set it for longer, Jesus. Oh, my lanta. I don't get why that has to be a thing. This is where that pre- or post-millennium thing happens, folks. So much is made of it. The pre-post or the A millennial discussion. This denomination officially considers itself pan-millennials. like, eh, we don't have an axe to grind into whether this takes place before or after or whatever. But it's interesting that this is probably the reason a lot of people were very scared at Y2K. If you remember, I'm sure you had a little of anxiety like, oh, it's just because banks, their computers don't know how to read 00 and everything will implode. But there are some that are like, well, 1,000 plus 1,000 equals 2,000. So that's curious. I'm a little concerned about what's going to take place with this thing. Satan's bound for a thousand years and then for a thousand years people rule with Christ. It's simple math. But again, we can get really caught up in the the details. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. This is verse 7 and 8. He will go out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. He will gather them for battle. The number is like the sea of the land. It's like, didn't we fight a battle? John, you're so confusing sometimes. They came up across the whole earth and surrounded the saints' camp, the city that God loves. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. Their painful suffering will be inflicted upon them day and night, forever and always. So at the end of the story, however the battle actually takes place, we spent a lot of time being really obsessed over all the details of when and where and how. But at the end of the story, at the end of this letter, Satan and his trinity of evil, or whatever you want to call the beasts in Satan, are defeated. The root cause for evil is dealt with. It is removed from the planets. There's one final act to this story before it becomes a little more sunshine and daisies-ish. And that's where we are today, folks. This is the thing that directly applies to churches for all time. Doesn't care about 1st century versus 21st century. It cares about who you are and whether you've chosen compromise over faithfulness. This final judgment verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and the one who was seated on it before his face both earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and scrolls were opened up. Another scroll was opened too. This is the scroll of life. And the dead were judged on the basis of what was written in the scrolls about what they had done. Now, I'm, this is going to sound really irreverent, but just to break the tension of the final judgment. Like, well, can we not use like heavenly iPads by that point, Jesus? Like, can people have a heavenly iPad? Or do we have to like use papyrus scrolls for all eternity? Like, we just always forever have to use scrolls, apparently can't use, like, heavenly iPads. Sorry, that was very irreverent. I just had to to throw that out there. That's where my brain goes sometimes. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and the grave gave up the dead that were in them, and people were judged by what they had done. Then death and the grave were thrown into the fiery lake. This fiery lake is the second death. Anyone whose name wasn't found written in the scroll of life was thrown into the fiery lake. So at the end of this story is this final decision made about who you were and what you did. But as we see throughout the rest of this book, time and time again, people made choices. They made choices to be on the path that they continue to walk down. That they seemed to know full well the ramifications of those choices that they saw God's wrath, they saw God's judgment, they said, oh, that's God. That's what God does. I'm going to choose Babylon still. That the church, at the very beginning of this book, they knew better. That every time the letter starts off with all seven of the churches, Jesus says, you think you're doing good. You're not. I hate to break it to you. I have this against you. I have that against you. You're not doing this. You should be doing that. That throughout this book, there's this crazy countercultural, super counterintuitive narrative of our champion being this meek, mild, and slain lamb. That this lamb is gonna go toe to toe with some big, scary beasts and dragons and all of the power the world can throw at it. And that if we really look at that picture, choosing to follow a slain lamb seems scary if you just look at that. He's like, but the world has nukes. But the government has jets and they have this and they have that. But at the end of all time, God has the final say. That God is actually in control. That God is almighty. That he is asking us. He's Literally begging please Do this. Just, um, it's real simple. Here's the letter. If you don't, this is going to happen. If you do, this is going to happen. It's going to be swell. High fives. That it is just laid out abundantly clear that this is just a, yeah, Jesus said to do this. So remember that church? Because hey, it's Jesus again through John. I know it's kind of confusing with the Holy Spirit and a letter from Patmos. Kind of Kind of confusing a little bit, but, but remember when Jesus said to do these things? How come you seem to have forgotten? It wasn't that long ago. It was a first century church. The 21st century church seems to sometimes forget even more. Next week's going to be our last sermon on this. The end series. Hallelujah. I think, uh, it's not because I don't think it's worthwhile to read, but this is a weighty book. And I understand that. I don't belittle that, but I also, if I'm going to be a good pastor, can't ignore some of the things that are in this Bible that are very convicting. That might be even an indictment on us. See, it's really easy to read this book, and I think we do it so often. To read this book and say, yeah, those ones. Oh, man, God's coming for them. Bummer for you. It's a lot harder, a lot more sobering to look at ourselves in the mirror and realize I might be compromised. I might be making choices that are less than faithful to who Jesus has called me to be. See, Jesus says it a lot. He says, don't point out other people's flaws. Look at your own. It's really easy to point out that speck in Hannah's eye but I might smack her over the head with the log sticking out of mine that judgment is reserved for god that if you're following jesus that's it just follow him be a good example for other people choose faithfulness over compromise compromise is going to be easier it might make you money it might get you political influence you might get some power you might be really comfortable you might have a really really nice house if you follow Jesus, you might die. That sounds less fun. <laughs> you can laugh at that. It's sort of a joke, but it's not. It's, not it's, it's real. There are people around this world that do it every day. There are people within this denomination that have to fly under the radar to be the church. That literally take their life in their hands every day to teach English. This is the easiest way to get people in the country: is to teach whatever language they need taught, and that's what they do. They're just a teacher of whatever that language is. <laughs> and I can guarantee you, they're not getting rich doing that. I've seen what missionaries get paid, and that's not a lot. At the end of all time, what this book is asking us is, where does your true allegiance lie? You will answer for what you believed and how it led you to live your life. That your standing with God only depends on you. That you could blame other people for it, but truly, there will be some sort of reckoning that is slightly terrifying to think about. Where the creator of the universe asks you, I told you to do this, why did you do that? And I don't know how all that pans out, I'm cautiously optimistic that God is a God of grace, that God will give grace, that God continues to offer grace, that God gives us plenty of opportunity to choose faithfulness over compromise. But in the end, it's up to us. It's up to us to choose this day who we will serve. Let's pray. God, I don't always get why these heavy books are so heavy. I don't fully understand why it has to feel so complex and difficult to understand. I don't, I don't always understand why so many people argue over what the meaning is. But I do know that your son Jesus came here and started something. And I do know that he calls us to follow him in very specific ways. And I do know we might be better served in focusing on that than obsessing with predictions and conjecture and decoding of things. That we might be better served just saying, you know what, you're God. You know better than me. I'm going to make it simple for myself and just choose to follow you no matter what. Times might, might make us wonder. Things seem to be getting difficult. Every generation seems to have an opportunity to say, oh, this is it. This is the end. Instead of obsessing over that, God, <laughs> as your word says, it'll be abundantly clear when Jesus comes back. Would we focus on the very simple truth that your son gave us to just be ready? to just be ready to just do the things that you've called us to do, uncompromised. To ask you to help us with discernment, to understand what compromises are. To ask you for boldness, to stand up for right things, to not give in. To understand how to do that well and not in a way that's just problematic and difficult. To ask you for wisdom, one to speak and one to listen, to ask you for peace, knowing that despite how chaotic this world seems, you are still God. You are still walking with us through it. That the end of the story is it, at the end of the story, you win. We get to be a part of that. But until then, we have a job to do. And that job is pretty simple being the church. We pray that that would be our focus, that even though we may be almost done with this book, we wouldn't lose sight of what it is calling for us to be. That is the physical embodiment of your son, Jesus, doing the work that he started, that we are honored and privileged to be a part of. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to close by actually singing this book, we're going to sing Revelation Song as we wrap up this time of worship. But use this time as you will. If you want to stand and sing,